if it's like um, Terminator. You can't stop Terminator. Yeah, that's that example Terminator. doesn't work. Yeah, that can't you take can't you take its head off or something? I don't. Uh, it depends on which model of the Terminator you're talking. <laughs> I didn't about. know there were different if models. It's, if it's the later model, that that no, you can't. If it's the Schwarzenegger older model, then then you can't probably later. could. Yeah, okay. but that'd be that'd be tough. You know what? I actually. I wonder why they didn't do that, but anyway. Always go yeah. for the head, right? Um, I can't remember the model number. It's like the T17 or something like that. Anyway. That's a new level of nerd, it's, Dan. That I've, <laughs> I've brought to this Welcome to God for Grownups. I'm your host, Pastor Dan Peterson of Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. On every episode of this show, we explore a topic from the Bible from different religious and theological perspectives sharing ideas and dispelling common myths, seeking a greater understanding of scripture and connecting scripture to everyday life and larger events in the world. I'm here once again this week with one of my regular guests, one of my favorite people, Dr. Beatrice Lawrence of Seattle University, an expert on the Hebrew Bible and Jewish hermeneutics. B, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. We are going to be talking about the serious issue of violence today. And we're doing so because the taping of this episode, wait, taping? Do people say taping anymore? I, I grew up hearing that. Do we say recording? I think recording. Isn't that interesting that we preserve recording, but we don't preserve taping? Because I was watching Star Trek recently, and, <laughs> and they keep talking about tapes, and they have yeah, little yeah. micro discs and things like mm -hmm. that. It's kind of hard to watch a show. The same is true with the, even the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. They use uh, props that, like, they talk on big phones, and mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of hard to accept it. I mean, not like it was totally easy before to accept something that's in outer space, but it's kind of hard to accept it. You're Do totally you right. ever have that challenge? Yeah, actually, one of the things I love about Star Trek is um, their technology uh, taking note of the things that, are clearly from 1968, 1969, 1970, and the things that actually are interesting in terms of the development of technology. There are some things that they have that were ahead of their time and, and that later scientists have said, actually, there's some basis for this. So, but yeah, when they have the like big, big ass computers with the huge reels on them and they have these cassette tapes that are like green and blue and, Read or when Spock has to run a computer check on something, it involves one button. It's always one button. I will check, Captain. Click. I don't know. Right. I, I like that. Well, and the fact too that they have to say things like computer, yeah. whereas now we can just speak to Siri or whatever and don't have to address it formally at the beginning. Yeah, we do. We have to say, "Hey Siri." Not on my not on my phone. Hey Siri. There she goes. Well, yeah, but you can just push a button, though, and oh, it'll yes, do the same thing. Oh, yes, you can. Thing. So. Oh, she's going to talk now. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we, we were talking about? about Star Trek technology. The oh, big yeah. one, of course, is the old, is the communicator and the flip phone. Right. They do say that that helped yeah. anticipate the development of that technology. Yeah. Yeah. It did, so. but I also heard somewhere that the least, the least likely technology to emerge from that show would be the uh, transporter. And the tricorder, which is that little thing McCoy holds that tells you everything about a person's body. 
and it makes that little that noise, yeah, yeah, and gives you indications on on various class M planets. Yes, the the fact, by the way, that the galaxy is full of habitable Earths. Yes, these are the class M planets that have the right combination of oxygen and nitrogen in the air, and so where they all speak English. Right. Yes, I know, and in some cases, their history actually mirrors exactly our mm-hmm. history whether mm-hmm. it's there by design in the in the case of the episode where they go back and it's 1930s America Chicago yeah or whether it, or it's also unexplained like there's one where they go back and they discover this tribe of of people who have the constitution somehow I don't know how that occurs if I, it's- yeah <laughs> sorry I'm laughing because there's a great <laughs> meme about this because they um it's a the it's it's a it's a there's a war between these people that wear animal skins and are really violent and stuff, and then these um, other peoples that are seen as more refined, and they do have a form of the Constitution. And that guy uh, that stormed the Capitol with like drawings all over his body and the animal skin coat and the horned helmet, I saw someone that. I made a meme out of that with the beginning of the Star Trek Constitution. You know, whatever. All right, moving on. Well, which actually functions as, a, I shouldn't laugh, yeah, because, no, it, but well, it does function as a nice segue to our topic. He was ridiculous. And the, and the precedent uh, for our topic, and that is the event that took place on Capitol Hill on January 6th, where uh, the five lives, actually six if you count the second um, police officer, mm-hmm were taken and people's lives were put in danger and property was desecrated. As I was watching the events of that day unfold in shock like many were across this country, I found myself as a theologian and a pastor uh, immediately asking the question of violence and to what degree uh, my tradition, the Christian tradition, is complicit in violence and to what degree uh, is it not? And I, I wanted to have you join me for this conversation because I wanted to hear your perspective on how the Hebrew Bible and subsequent Jewish tradition is complicit or not or uh, what it says even about violence. So how would you start? I mean, what, when it comes to the question of violence, where, what would you go to first in Scripture or tradition to begin to answer the question of what this do you mean what text would I pull out first? Because yeah. I can't choose one text. Okay. Well, I would probably, though, start by saying the commandment is not you shall not kill. The commandment is you shall not murder. Killing is when you end someone's life for a justified reason. Murder is unjustified killing. But it is clear in the Hebrew Bible there are times that you have to kill. And what constitutes a justified reason? Uh, capital punishment. Self-defense. Hmm. And, and uh, we can talk about things that, quote-unquote, count for capital punishment. Um, self-defense, war. There are times you have to go to war. And what is retained in subsequent Jewish interpretation is the fact that you cannot say that Judaism is a pacifist tradition, and you can also not say that it doesn't have pacifist elements, because both things are true. Sure. Um, but there is a sense of sometimes violence is necessary. Ironically enough, for um, about 1,900 years, Jews did not pick up weapons and kill other people as Jews 
for their own sake. Um, from the destruction of the Second Temple until the beginning of the fight for a contemporary state in Israel. Everywhere Jews lived, they were the uh, objects of violence. Right, and do you think they resisted taking up arms because of the simple fact in part that they were often the minority uh, um, in, in context? Yeah, I think actually you can watch that shift takes place in, in Jewish texts because in the Bible there's a sense of we are a kingdom and we go to war and we defend ourselves against our enemies and we broaden our territory and then enter, we enter a time period when the Jews are always the minority and they're always subject to the whims of the people who are in the majority and the rabbis pared back a great deal on reasons to kill people. They really didn't want to kill people. And they pared back a great deal. So even laws that in the Bible you read, if a person does this, that person must be put to death, they said no. Can't do that. So this was partially a survival strategy, um, but also partially based on inter history of interpretation. Yes, and also I think a bit of empathy. Hmm. When you are the people that are pretty consistently attacked, you uh, don't want to turn around and do that to someone else. Right. That's why the contemporary conflict with Israel-Palestine is so loaded. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I can see that, where if you are constantly being attacked and oppressed and threatened and killed, you might think twice about wanting to do that to somebody else. Well, actually, a lot of people don't think twice about it. They simply go out for revenge. Well, and that's another reason that it gets complicated. But if you look at Jewish history, you realize that for that very long period of time, they were not committing acts of violence like that. Um, and they were finding reasons not to put people to death, even if they did something that would supposedly warrant it. If you, have, if you were found guilty of a capital crime, they tried to find ways not to have to put you to death. They engaged in witness intimidation. They brought in witnesses and said, you realize your testimony could sentence this man to death. It'll be on your head. How do you feel about that? Um, and if the person said never mind and left, that was fine. If ever the Sanhedrin found... Um, these are the priestly leaders? Uh, these were judges. This was like a Supreme Court sort okay. of... Uh, if ever they found a person... Um, to be guilty of a capital crime unanimously, the person was let go because they believed they must have missed something. Anyway, I'm babbling, but I guess in terms of where I would start, I would start with the fact that it is um, a tradition that embodies both violence and nonviolence in the traditional text, but has a history typically being on the receiving end of it. Right, and thus resisting when it, uh, the, the opportunity to commit revenge by violence because of what has been happened, what has happened to them so long? I think so, and of course it's so interesting how the Holocaust had an impact on that. How, how did the Holocaust have an effect um, on that? There, there are uh, events that um, appear to be a degree of revenge, Nazi hunters, not to kill them, but to bring them to justice, right? Did you see there's a show on, um, I think it's on Amazon about Nazi hunters? I've never heard of Nazi hunters York. when you said that. Yeah, that, oh, that's news yeah. to me. Yeah. 
Wow. You really haven't? Oh, yeah. No, there's uh, people trained to go find Nazi war criminals who but escaped. It, but it was never for the sake, ultimately, of capital punishment. It was just to bring them to justice by way of... It was to bring them of... to justice, though one of the Nazis that was captured was put to death, Adolf Eichmann. Hmm. They found him in Argentina. Eichmann they found? Adolf Eichmann. Wow. In 1960. He was living in Argentina under an assumed name. and um, This is Eichmann of the Eichmann trials. And the, wow. the Mossad uh, had spent a lot of time tracking him. They waited. This is the best story. And they waited. And he got off his bus that night uh, to walk to his house from the bus stop. He had some sort of a day job. And one member of the Mossad stopped and asked him for directions. And the others jumped on him, put a bag over his head, threw him in a car, took him to a safe house. And then um, they were trying to capture a couple of other people in Argentina. Didn't work. Flew him to Israel year-long trial or longer than a year and he was put to death he's the only person ever put to death in israel wow the I crime didn't, was genocide i didn't know that that's how he was captured though yeah it's a great story fascinating yeah huh there have been some movies about it some more accurate than others what do you think well i don't want to get up too off track but it'd be neat to return sometime to the to um hannah arendt's treatment of the of the eichmann trial but really that's another that may powerful. be another episode yeah um so, so okay so let me say this um I, I want to hear, I'm telling you ways in which this is a mixed bag when it comes to Judaism. Um, there are, it often depends on the individual case. Have you been kidnapped? Um, is your life immediately in danger? Do you need to go to war against the people who are seeking your extermination? These are the sort of questions that come up. And even there you find Talmudic arguments. There's a great argument about a person who breaks into your house. When do you have the right to kill that person as if they were seeking to harm you? They come up with a decision that if it happens at night and you kill the person, you are not guilty of murder. But if it happens during the day, you can't kill the person. Why? It doesn't say. <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful answer. <laughs> I know. It doesn't tell you. Anyway, huh. so when you were watching this Capitol riot... And you said you were wondering how Christianity is. Did you say complicit? I said complicit with regard to my tradition, not yeah. not yours. And I used that word for yours, but I'm trying to imagine now, based on what you've shared, if there could be any justification from your tradition for involvement and support of what happened on January 6th. And well, one of the problems is Judaism, as a tradition, has a lot of resources to support Jews who are very pro-gun control. And generally speaking, Jewish communities would really like there to be stricter gun control. Of course. I mean, so they're obviously, given people. the fact that they're often targeted, they're, that's yeah. part of it. But also this 1900 years of tradition that, that informs that perspective too, right? Yeah. Um, and then you also have, um, the, but one of the problems is the radical misinformation. The people that were there attacking the Capitol were, I mean, I'm going to say it, batshit crazy, right? But they, many of them believed this was a matter of life and death. And many of them believed this was somehow a fulfillment of prophecy. Right. How do you evaluate that and the question of violence? Well, and also, uh, there were some, I saw this and was appalled, there were some flags that had mm -hmm. Jesus's name on them, Jesus saves, and then... There was one flag I saw that had, or a banner that had Jesus talking about how every knee shall bend uh, 
um, in reverence to Christ. It's a line from Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, where after Paul offers what I think is one of the most beautiful statements, most scholars think it was probably an early Christian hymn that he, that he quotes, uh, talking about how um, Christ made in the form of God did not wish to exploit equality with God. I mean, the trans, there's, a, there's a translation dispute there, but basically it says he emptied himself, mm-hmm. taking the form of a servant and uh, um, following in obedience to the cross. And so you have this moment, John Caputo talks about this as, uh, you know, really one of those great texts that illustrates God's weakness which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, the language of God's weakness, the only time in the entire New Testament we hear such language. But the idea is that if, you, if your point of departure is the cross, and if you assume that God was somehow present in Christ on the cross, then most of our guesses, as one of my mentors used to say, about who God is and where God is to be found are wrong. God isn't in power, glory, and might. God mm. is in shame, weakness, and suffering. Okay. And so that becomes a, uh, the cross becomes a point of departure for a theology Luther developed, the theology of the cross, which talks about how God is hidden in suffering. That part's great. It really challenges established conventional understandings of God as almighty, all-powerful, all-male. What is it? Um, I was just reading about this in a, a book on polytheism by... Mary Rubenstein, where she talks about God as the great white guy in the sky. <laughs> but So this challenges that. But then you have this triumphalistic passage that follows, and it's like Paul just forgot what he, had, what he just wrote. And it's there that he talks about how every knee shall bend uh, to Christ. And it's that text that then becomes justification for a kind of theocracy, a Christian theocracy. And so you could see that, uh, you could see that on the Capitol, on the steps, uh, and flags and banners, or on flags and banners. And so that version of Christianity is absolutely complicit in this violent attempt to overthrow the United States government. And that's really, uh, really uh, hard for me to accept that any form of Christianity would be this way, but it's a reality. And unlike the Jewish tradition, I think there is less ambiguity in the earliest chapters of the Christian faith, but then much more ambiguity following uh, the adoption of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And, and even in, and I should qualify that. So I believe it's the case that up until Constantine in the fourth century, Uh, defended Christianity and it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, that Christians refused to participate in military service Mm -hmm. because of their commitment, if not to pacifism, at least to Mm nonviolence. Now, that's physical violence. There was still already being violence done in terms of the relationship that the emerging Christian church had with Jewish people. Uh, So it's not to say that there wasn't, for example, rhetorical violence, but there was... uh, uh, resistance to physical violence, and the I think the strategy in some ways mirrors what Jews subsequently went through, which is the Christians were a minority, and so I think as a as a survival strategy, that was partially what informed their commitment to nonviolence. Why why try to overthrow the Roman government when you know that you will lose? You know what I mean? Or when you know it will attract attention to you and, and destroy people you love. So 
I think part of it is the is the survival strategy, which is why I sometimes think that weak institutions are more prophetic than than strong ones, and that if that makes sense. Yeah, I have- I'm stealing that from somebody else, but I agree with it. I'm thinking uh, about a thousand things just came up. So first of all, are you familiar with the muscle-bound Jesus thing? I'm aware that it that the muscle-bound Jesus was was elevated by people like Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill and in Seattle as a, as sort of the emblematic expression of masculinity. Yeah, he's like he's hot, right? But, you know, he works out, right? Um, and I don't mean that as any sort of uh, blasphemy. I just think it's a really interesting correlation of the kind of masculinity you're talking about with a figure whose self-presentation in the text or narrative presentation in the text would not match that. Right. Um, so, and this flag that you saw, I don't recall that one about every knee shall bend. Was there an image on it? That I do not recall. Okay. Um, and I do think whenever a religion becomes aligned with power, things go wrong. Um, so that now that there is a state of Israel with a government that is significantly Jewish, problems are emerging. Yeah, when power is involved. Yes, right. I think so. I think you're right. I guess, you know, I think about the example, one of the best examples of a, of a prophetic weak institution would have been, to some degree, the confessing church in Germany. Because the, it was the, the dominant expression of Christianity, the German Christians who adopted the Aryan Clause, who were supportive or at least didn't resist Hitler and so forth, and the confessing church for, to some degree, problematic reasons, but at least uh, nevertheless resisted. The confessing church was a small band of churches that formed seminaries that tried to resist the Nazis, and my understanding is that they, I mean, they were just wiped off the, off the board. And one of the ways they did it was that when the Nazis would um, capture and imprison uh, members of the confessing church, they would inscript them in the military and put them on the front lines. So, uh, but I mean, I think that's one of those moments where you have this little, this little shining star, this beacon that, that of people who resist but they're often people who otherwise are are in a in a place of weakness, I guess you could say, I'm not, I'm institutionally. Not, I don't know that pacifism is by nature right, um, and I don't think I'm willing to say that there never is a necessity for violence. Well, let's go back to the concrete example of somebody burglarizing your house. Right. Can we actually talk about a specific legal category in Judaism that okay. I think reveals a great deal? Is sure. that all right? Because the, that is one example of the greater legal category. Because okay, know, this great. Is how Jews talk. Okay. That person burglaring your house is called a hodef, and that person is, is it burglaring your house? I don't know. I burglarizing. I, <laughs> I made burglarizing. it up. Okay. Right. It was like Sorry. the hamburglar. Made right. me think of the oh hamburglar. Didn't he steal things? Didn't he have like a mask and stripes and he stole things? I think. Well, didn't he steal hamburgers? There you go. Okay. Um, Wouldn't it be interesting if you found out later, like in his biography, that he was a vegetarian? <laughs> his biography. <laughs> I want his autobiography. Um, <laughs> the, um, so the Rodef is, in the American pronunciation, Rodef is a pursuer, and this is someone who is seeking to end someone else's life. All right. The general legal teaching is that you can kill a Rodef if you 
are being pursued to take your life, you can kill that person and it's not murder. If you see a Rodef coming after someone else, not only can you kill the Rodef, you have an obligation to intercede and do that. You're not allowed to walk away. Um, and Rodef can be a person. It can also be a thing. This is why abortion in Judaism needs to be legal and available because in the case where a woman is pregnant and the pregnancy is threatening her life, the fetus is a Rodef and must be terminated. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, but, but of course, one of the questions is, how do you know if the person's going to kill someone or just maim them? Right? Like, how do you know how far this is going to go? What if it's an entire institution? How do you judge these things? Well, and in certain circumstances, are you obligated to kill? What if you can just temporarily injure that person instead of killing that instead person? Instead of killing that person. Yes. And, the, and when you read the Talmudic texts that list all of this, they don't... Um, the language is not such that you would see unless you can temporarily maim the person. It is very much about the boundary. Can, is this as far as you can go? Yes, this is as far as you can oh, go. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. In the same way That's that... That's the limit. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not actually advocating that you can remove people's eyes and teeth depending on what they've done. Oh, it's, it's also a limit. It's a limit. That you can up, do up to this point. But you may not do more. Interesting. Yeah. So... Um, so that's sort of the idea. So yeah, I mean, if you see somebody and you can just take them out by the kneecaps, that's probably better. But if you have to kill the person. I was okay. thinking about the, the example of somebody uh, burglaring or burglarizing yeah. the house, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I was thinking, well, okay, in my tradition, what response could I have? Well, if we're talking about the first three or four centuries of the Christian faith, I don't know what I could do. Um, again, because that tradition seems to be committed to nonviolence, if not pacifism. And I think that would need, need to be, I've, I'm hearing a lot of people make that distinction now. Mm -hmm. And I know there's nuance there. I just don't know how to make the distinction myself yet. But I, I'm guessing that nonviolence means actively resisting, but without the attempt to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe the connotation of pacifism is just accepting as a victim violence. I don't know. But... But once you get to the third, fourth century and you have the, the realization that we, that we as this bigger church now need to live in a very complex world, mm -hmm. is there any justification for violence, in particular for participation in military service? And by the time you get to Martin Luther, you have developed a just war um, tradition. And Luther is the one who says, well... If you are acting on behalf of the state as a soldier, as a, as a um, police officer, or as an executioner, you are doing God's work by helping the state preserve civil order. And, um, and so in that regard, you are justified in using violence when necessary. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is like the Jewish tradition, I think here, that if you see somebody else who's being threatened um, physically and, and harm is being uh, about to occur, that you are justified. I don't know if he says obligated, but certainly justified to step in and, and protect that other person. So if somebody was uh, had come into my house and I had a family, um, I would do whatever I could in good conscience, according to Luther, uh, to protect my family, if that even meant the death of the person who came in. But I live alone, 
And so this is where it gets really tricky. Luther says that if, uh, if it's not on behalf of somebody else, and if you're not uh, uh, fulfilling an office on the part of the state to preserve civic order, civil order, then you have to uh, receive the violence without uh, doing, without committing violence in return. And I, I don't know, I can think of how, uh, how awful that would be in certain situations like domestic abuse. Exactly. So I get what he's trying to say. I get, and what I love about nonviolence is that it does in some contexts uh, thwart the, the cycle of revenge. But in other contexts, the inability to respond is problematic. You know, you have offered to save my life on more than one occasion. But that's with regard to zombies. No, 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 no. We were in IHOP. It was like two or three in the morning. And some drunk people behind us started getting in a fight and throwing stuff. And it got really loud. And you looked at me and you said, run for it. I can, if I throw my body down, I can get you one minute. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that was so chivalrous. That's I will right. Never forget yeah. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to think already, though, that one minute might have been a slightly generous. <laughs> no, no, you literally were going to throw your body yeah. in front of them. I, I so probably could stop you. them for a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's just so they could trip over yes, me. Just so they could trip over you. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you are talking both about individual cases where um, a person is being attacked, and then you're talking about institutional cases. And um, I personally see them as having uh, different elements of the question of violence or nonviolence. So like on a personal level, you know, one critique of radical pacifism would be that you're expecting certain peoples not to defend themselves who are often targeted more like women and children. Like, can you say to them, no, you get, don't get to defend yourself. But on an institutional level, what does it mean to join a military? What does it mean to fight in a revolution? What does it mean to rebel against a leader if you genuinely believe that leader is wrong, even if you have been fed so much misinformation? I see where you're going, yeah. I don't know how to navigate those questions. To what degree are those who participated in the event of January 6th responsible? On, and on the one hand, they're completely responsible. Right. And on the other hand, they represent a system and a building up of an army. And then the question becomes about just leadership, the people making the choices to spread this misinformation, the Fox News and the Donald Trump and mm -hmm. the QAnon right. and all of that, spreading this misinformation and their role in this violence. And I, I don't know how that role can be made more public, uh, but that is a necessary element. It's not just about people storming the Capitol. Right. Right, there are layers here, definitely. And I mean, this is why I said at the beginning that I, that I worry my tradition is complicit. The passage from Philippians yes. directly reads, after it talks about how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Then it says, skipping a verse to nine, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's, uh, John Caputo says this, he says, here you have Paul talking first about the self-emptying of Christ 
And then in this passage that follows, Paul walks it all back. And it's one of those moments like our friend Matt Whitlock, professor of New Testament at Seattle University, says that he wishes, he's joking, but he says he wishes Paul would have died after he finished Galatians. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I guess I wish, I mean, Paul didn't know that hundreds and thousands of years later, people would basically all over the world would be reading his personal correspondence with local churches. I mean, Paul thought that the end would occur in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I can't really blame Paul, maybe. But on the other hand, I think, gosh, why couldn't you have just stopped there? Uh, I don't need him to die. <laughs> but why couldn't you have just stopped and skipped to what would become, say, chapter two? I can see why the first part of that resonates with you. And I can see why the second part troubles you. And I don't, it reminds me of redaction activity in the Hebrew Bible where, um, the book of Isaiah ends in a reference to worms and decay. So somebody threw something at the very end. So the book wouldn't end that way or Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes ends with a downer message. So someone put in something about fearing God and, right. um, but redaction activity isn't an option here. It definitely came from Paul. Not so, so by reaction, you're just talking about editing, right? Yeah. How people edit for the, for the sake of, of making a, a story that doesn't end the way they think it should end the way they think or it should. Or downplay a verse they right. find problematic. No, this is, uh, this is a challenge. Now, we do have variant readings in the New Testament, uh, in, which means that there are, when they're comparing, the, when biblical translators are comparing all the various manuscripts, of which there are apparently some 5,000 going back to the second century. Do you mean, uh, oh, of the New Testament? Of the New Testament. Uh, they'll notice that in some cases, verses are missing that were that are then, uh, that appear later in later editions. Um, for example, the story in the Gospel of John where Jesus confronts the Pharisees who are about to stone to death a woman who is a prostitute. Um, Jesus... Uh, stops them and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That isn't in the earliest versions of John that we have. That's and it's, it's So it was redacted. I mean, or what, not redacted, but it was added in later. And who knows? I'm glad it's there. But at the same time, uh, I guess that just illustrates that there is to some degree this kind of activity, but it's not, it's not anything like you see in the Hebrew Bible. And Interesting. Yeah, um, I think for me the, the the issue of the New Testament and violence is right now is really centered on verses like uh, chapter 20, verses 36 through 38 in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells his disciples to carry their swords with them. They have two swords, apparently, is what he refers to. And, and a lot of scholars think that he's being ironic. Like, yeah, sure, take the two swords. So, uh, but that's really at the center of all this is that people will use that text to justify not only gun ownership, but the use of, of violence. And yet, if, uh, if you keep reading, Jesus says moments later to Peter, who pulls out his sword, uh, he, he commands him to, to stop. He heals the person that he wounds, his, takes off his ear, heals the, heals the person that he wounds and demands that he puts his sword back in its sheath and says, um, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And you have a reference to that same passage in, uh, or that same way of thinking in Revelation 13, 
the most the book that has the most violent imagery in the whole New Testament still insists that followers of Christ are not to take up arms against the Roman government. That's why when Riza Aslan wrote Zealot several years ago, there was a, an explosion of public discourse about it, right? Because he depicted a, a Jesus who was more assertive, maybe, a Jesus who could go on the attack. Did you read it? I've, I know about it. I haven't right. read the book. Yeah, it, it, there's violence. Like, there's a Jesus who advocates violence. And a lot of people flipped out because this didn't match the Jesus that, that they knew. Sure. I actually think the challenge in this regard might be greater in Christianity than it is in Judaism because Maybe. to oversimplify things a lot, I think one of the most important central values in Christianity is love. And in Judaism, the equivalent is justice. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is, that's a nice contrast. So, and if illustrate. you got to do justice, sometimes you can't have peace. Yeah, this has been a struggle for the Christian religion from just about day one. And the history is a pretty violent one. It is. It's a, it's a violent tradition. And, and that's what's so bizarre is that its underpinnings aren't, with the exception of passages like Paul's, they're, they're not, there's no call to violence here. There's a call to love. I mean, mm -hmm. that's how Christians supposedly tried to distinguish themselves in the ancient world, was that their love was greater than, than those around them. And yet... Uh, here it is again and again and again compromised and people now going after proof texts to justify violence in the name of Christ. It just doesn't feel right to me at all. I mean, the, the other verse that they often go for is in all four gospels. It's where Jesus drives uh, the money changers and the, the livestock out of the temple. And it says that he used a whip of cords, but what most people don't realize is that the Greek is ambiguous, and most English translations indicate that he used the whip of cords only on the livestock, not on the people. I don't like that either, though. It's not the animal's fault. It's Everybody not. leave the animals alone. I don't care what happens to the people as long as the dog lives. <laughs> All right, but you get my point, though, I right? I do. I do get your <laughs> I mean, point. sure, I don't, like, I don't like cruelty either uh, or anything like that. But he but, wasn't attacking. But he wasn't attacking other human beings. And I've heard, I've heard so many people use that as justification as well, and it's really bothersome. I know someone who deals with it um, uh, by basically tossing out everything from the fourth century onward and referring to that as empire sure. and referring to what comes before it as the true religion. Right. Which I, I tend to agree with to some degree, but I also think there's a kind of uh, Protestant bias in that. No. Right? Because yeah, it doesn't take tradition into account. <laughs> I know who you're talking about, mm -hmm. and yes, no, it's, it's, there is a Protestant bias <laughs> in that. Yeah, the person was uh, Catholic. Right, I know, that's why, yeah. I know, that's why it's strange, yeah. but I guess, the, uh, I guess Martin Luther has cast a long shadow over <laughs> multiple versions of Christianity. But, <laughs> but, I, but I, that's why I said at the beginning that I think that there are other forms of violence before Christianity became a state religion mm -hmm. in the fourth century, and some of that is rhetorical violence. Sure. So, uh, so it's not as if it's a, it's a pure tradition before and that there was a fall and that ever since it's been hopelessly compromised, although there is a lot of that. I do think it was complicated from the beginning, but I like what you said about love. That is sort of the, the driving claim. And in Judaism, and, it's justice. I, yeah. was on a, I was in a faculty meeting yesterday or something. We were talking about um, people in the university 
who, as the university is undergoing all of this changing for financial reasons, think that our department, theology and religious studies, is like a waste of space. And, um, and we were able to determine who a couple of these people were. And I made a comment about being able to take them out. I might be short, but I'm scrappy, right? And one of my colleagues looked at me and he said, no, we have to love our enemies. And I was like, I don't have to love my enemies. That's on you. That's your problem. Not mine. You are at a Catholic university. I know, but I don't. I didn't sign a thing saying I adhere to Catholic views or doctrines. They were like, "You get to stay a Jew." I'm like, I actually can't commit violence against them, but I don't have to love them. That is hard. But justice as a central value means that you have to look at all of these different um, elements of an event to determine what the just response is and and that includes elements where you have to decide if a person needs to be put to death for what they've done there is a concept in judaism that you can lose the right to live i suppose setting aside canon law and the catholic tradition that there are fewer resources here in the christian tradition for thinking these things through when it comes to justice i could be totally wrong about that but if you go back to the the new testament it doesn't there is only one statement about the nature of god in the whole uh, all 27 books of the new testament and that's God is love. Yeah. It's, uh, I've heard people try to skirt that, which I think is really sad, by saying, well, no, it also indicates that God is holy. But really, I, I'm not sure about that. It certainly does talk of God as holy, but nobody in the New Testament says God is, except God is love. And the word for love is? Probably agape is it here. agape? Although okay. I'm working on that right now, but that'll be okay. another discussion maybe. Because um, you're reading Song of Songs. I am, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah so and and Christians don't don't sing songs like and we know and they'll know that we are Christians by our justice they sing and they'll know that we are Christians by our love mm-hmm. and I think that's for me I guess to come full circle now to the to the basic point is why uh, the the Capitol Hill riot was so hard for me to take in mm-hmm. uh, because Christians are supposed to be about love and yet here we see this. Uh, this violence and this call to arms and uh, the uh, murder that took place, murders that took place, and it's just, this is not who Christians are, and the fact that people could appropriate and misuse the faith for that reason is very disturbing to me, and it should be disturbing to um, any other Christian, for that matter. It wasn't right Jewishly either. That wasn't just. I, to say just doesn't mean that, that you're running around with a sword and hacking up anyone who's wrong, but I guess I mean um, there's a reason that the system of courts and, and judges that now forms the basis of American jurisprudence actually began in the Hebrew Bible in Exodus chapter um, 18 because of this notion that God cares that you make just decisions. All right, there was nothing just about that. And the people engaged in their beliefs so this is a place where we could say, on the basis of love and of justice, we both agree that what happened that day was wrong. Yeah, I doubt that you and I know anyone who would say it wasn't wrong. I would hope not. I would hope not to. Yeah. So, but it's nice to have the strength of tradition behind you on, on oh, things yes. like this. Oh, yes. Most definitely. By the way, we now have in our government... Among the four people in the, that are in the primary positions and married to them, <laughs> we have an educator. We have a very active Catholic, right? I know where this is going. A woman of color and a Jewish guy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's great. 
And a uh, rescue dog. Okay, yes. And a rescue dog. All right. Well, on on that note, uh, that's it for this episode of God for Grownups. For more episodes, uh, go to godforgrownups.fm or subscribe in any podcast app. To comment on the show, send an email or voice recording to pastor at queenannelutheran.org for possible inclusion in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks, B, for being with us, being with me today. And we'll be back soon with another episode of God for Grownups. Ups.